At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. My name is Kurt McDonald. If you've not had an opportunity to meet, I am uh, one of the pastors here uh, at the church. And this morning is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Last week, uh, we began this series uh, on the minor prophets, uh, and we're doing this series kind of in a unique way for us, Uh, and it's a unique series for for kind of two reasons. First being, usually we endeavor to go through one book at a time. Uh, We live with that book. We stay with that one book. Uh, We go line by line, verse by verse through that one book, Uh, but during this series, we're going to endeavor to go through 12 uh, all at once, and so it's a little bit unusual in that way. Uh, In the same way, we're going to be looking at the big idea of that book and exegeting a particular text. So we will exegete a text. If you don't know what the word exegete means, it just means to to lead out from. So we will be going through particular texts, but we're also going to be looking at the big idea uh, of that particular book. And so um, we're going to cover books in different time uh, slots. So uh, Hosea, we're actually going to be in this book for four weeks, but then uh, we'll probably, when we jump to Joel, uh, we'll probably only do one week in in that book. And so some books are longer than others, uh, and so we'll spend more time uh, with those books. So we're we're looking at the minor prophets. This is by way of review. Why are they called minor prophets? If you're taking notes, the book of the 12 are called minor prophets because their books are shorter than the major prophets, not because they are less important. So that's why they're called minor prophets. If you turn to Isaiah, you'll see that uh, there is a staggering 66 chapters uh, in Isaiah, or even Ezekiel is 48 chapters. Uh, But when you jump into the minor prophets, uh, you get books like Obadiah, which is one chapter, or or Haggai, which is two chapters. And so uh, it's not like the major leagues, the minor leagues uh, here. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God, amen, and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and, and that sort of thing. And so even though these are usually the books that we skip over to get into the New Testament, God has a word for us in these books. Amen. And so we're going to be studying them together. They're called the minor prophets, uh, again, because they're shorter, not because they're less important. In addition, they're called prophets. Well, what is a prophet? Again, this is by way of review. Prophets are chosen by God to speak to the people of God, the very words of God. And so you have um, all throughout the Old Testament, God speaking uh, to his people through priests and through kings, and in addition, through prophets. Uh, Last week, uh, as we kind of got done uh, with the sermon, somebody asked me this question, and I thought uh, it was a very astute question about uh, prophets in particular. The the question uh, was this, what makes these prophets different than modern-day prophets? pastors, right? Because aren't pastors speaking God's word to God's people? And so what makes uh, a a modern day preacher or pastor different than these prophets? Well, here's the 
big difference. These men were chosen by God to speak the infallible word of God. And so when these men speak or when these men write their books, the Holy Spirit is there to make sure that 100% of what they say is from God. On the other hand, I am not 100% free from error. Amen? My wife said amen in the back. So uh, if, if you want to know the difference between these prophets that are speaking here and, and a modern day pastor that's preaching is pastors are not infallible in any way, shape, or form. Listen, that's why almost every week I tell you, hey guys, we're, we're going to go through this passage, and I explain to you, get this passage out in front of you so that, and I always say this, so that you can make sure I'm not making it up as we go along. And, and again, I'm not joking about that. I, I want you guys to get these texts in front of you as we, as we are going through them. So Last week, we began to look at the book of Hosea. Uh, again, go ahead and get that text out in front of you so you can make sure that I'm making up as I go. Uh, we began to look at the book of Hosea, and the, the commentator, James Montgomery Boyce, has this to say about the book of Hosea. He says this, Hosea is the second greatest story in all of the Bible, second only to the story of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, the reason that he says it's the second greatest story in all of the Bible is because Hosea is actually pointing to the greatest story in all of the Bible, which is Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. It's pointing us to this fact that we are the unfaithful spouse, and we have been purchased and redeemed by Jesus. That's the whole picture of Hosea, that Jesus is the one who pursues us even in our unfaithful lives and our unfaithful following of Christ. So we said at, at, the, at this point in Israel's history, they are a divided kingdom. And so 10 tribes have gone up north. Uh, they, they are called the Northern Kingdom. And there are two tribes in the south, that being Judah and Benjamin. And so there, there's this civil war going on. There's this, this separation in the people of God with, with these two kingdoms. And Hosea is actually speaking to the Northern Kingdom. So listen to this though. Even though they are a divided nation financially they're actually doing pretty well we will learn this when we get to the book uh, of amos we'll, we'll figure out that even though they're divided financially they're doing pretty well the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are experiencing an economic boom during this time when hosea is writing business and trade is going very well and they are building houses and they're prospering and things are going pretty well and here's what i want you to see if you're taking notes where comfort and ease increase, our dependence on God seems to decrease. So what's happening here is the nation felt relatively safe. They had a little money. And so in their minds, they're like, well, what, what do we need God for? I mean, we, we've got this thing going pretty well. We're, we're doing pretty good. You see, the more stuff we have, the less we feel like we need God. I mean, how often do we fall under the delusion that we are making it, we're doing well in life? Why? Because we work hard. How often do we fall under the delusion that I built my career because I have that I never give up type of attitude and spirit? How often do we under, are we living under the misconception that the cars that we drive, the houses that we live in, the food that we eat are all because we have earned it. When things are going well, when we are comfortable, when, when there's no kind of big explosions going in our life, that's usually the time when we forget about God. He, he kind of becomes this distant memory. We don't need him. It's only when things blow up in our life. It's only when there's tragedy that we run to God. And this is exactly what's happening with the nation of Israel. Things are going well for them. They're, they're comfortable. They're, the economy is going well. The, their military is doing pretty good. It's protecting them from these foreign enemies that are trying to attack them. And so because of that, they've shifted gears 
years moving away from God and are looking to these other gods, the, these other Baals. Baal is the, uh, the kind of the male god, and then there's Ashtoreth, which is uh, kind of the female counterpart to Baal. And so they're looking to these other gods and entering into these pagan practices precisely because they are comfortable. If you're taking notes, comfort makes God a fuzzy memory which is why he asks us to do uncomfortable things. God is going to ask you to do uncomfortable things. And precisely the reason that he's asking you to do those uncomfortable things is because when we are comfortable, when the bank account is full, when there's no sickness in the house, when things are going well, God becomes a distant, fuzzy memory. And so God often calls us into difficult things and difficult situations. Why? Because he wants us to understand our dependence on him. It's not that we don't, it's not that we're not dependent on him when things are well. We actually are. What he's trying to do is show us that we actually are dependent on him in, in those difficult times. And so God is going to call you into difficult things and into difficult situations. I mean, church family, have you ever confronted someone about their sin? Well, that's pretty uncomfortable, right? I mean, so, so God is going to call us into doing uncomfortable things. Church family, have you ever wept and prayed with someone who has experienced a miscarriage? That's painful. That's uncomfortable. Have you ever totally rearranged your entire budget so that you can live on less and so that you can give more? Have you ever decided in your heart to forgive someone who did not ask for it and did not deserve it? God's going to call us to do uncomfortable things. And the reason that he's calling us to do those uncomfortable things is precisely because he wants us to see that we are dependent on him. Do you remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he says, what, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And, you know, he, he tells him, you, you got to go sell everything. And he goes away. He walked away. Why? Because Jesus was asking him to do this uncomfortable thing to show him how dependent that he really was. I mean, look, we're, we're about to step into this age in our church where we're going to celebrate 10 years and things are going pretty well for our church. And so I wonder if in the beginning years when we were just trying to get it up off the ground, you, you remember how we prayed church family? Do you remember how we called out to God to bless our church, to grow our church, how dependent we felt? I wonder if 10 years later, we're still that dependent and still that prayerful asking God to do those things for our church. We can't get comfortable. We can't get comfortable. So the nation of Israel, in the midst of their prosperity, uh, giving way to comfort and consumerism, they adopted these pagan gods and pagan practices. And so in the midst of all of that was happening in the nation, God calls Hosea to do a very uncomfortable thing. God calls Hosea to do a very painful thing, precisely because everyone was so comfortable. What God calls Hosea to do is crushing to him. He calls him not just to marry a prostitute, but to love her, 
to love her. It, it wasn't just out of duty. Like he just, he just had to go do it. And so he goes and they, you know, they go to the court and they'd say the thing and then they live totally separate lives. No, no. The calling on Hosea's life is not just to marry a prostitute, but it is to, to love her, even though she is going to be unfaithful to him, even though she's going to walk out on him, even though that she's going to leave him with the kids and go do her own thing. He is called to love her. And what God is doing, he's doing two things. He, he is showing the nation what he is like. He is the loving father. He is the loving husband who chases after an unfaithful spouse. So he's trying to show the nation through the life of Hosea what he is like. In addition, he is showing the nation what they are like. They are the unfaithful spouse who is running away to these other gods. This is exactly what he is calling Hosea to do. He's calling him to do this very painful thing, this very uncomfortable thing. And so right by the outset of this very book, you can, we can learn this. If you're taking notes, God will lead you into places you do not want to go to shape you into what you could never be on your own. He's, he's calling Hosea into this painful thing, into this, this thing that's going to crush him, this thing. I mean, if, if you were to ask Hosea, do, do you want this calling, Hosea? Hosea is going to say, no, I don't want this calling. But he still places this calling on his life, and he's, he's bringing him into something that he does not want to do. That's exactly what God is doing to Hosea. But he's, in, in calling him into that thing, he's actually transforming Hosea into something that he could never be on his own. Hosea then is becoming a picture of who God is to the nation precisely because God is calling him into this difficult thing. Don't you see? This is exactly what God does with us. He places these difficult callings on our lives. He is calling you into difficult things. He's going to call you into painful situations precisely because he is trying to transform you into something that you could not be if you did not go through that painful situation. This is how powerful our God is. This is who he is. I want you to see and know this, church family. God is not ultimately concerned with your happiness. He's more concerned with your holiness. Let yes. uh, I, I, I me mean, ask this question, and I want you to think about it. Was Jesus happy? Well, he was certainly filled with joy, wasn't he? Hebrews tells us for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. But Jesus is also known as the man of sorrows. How about this? Was, was Jesus successful? Well, certainly not by our worldly standards. He, he never wrote a book. He never wrote a song. He never starred in a film. He didn't launch a, you know, international podcast. And, you know, he wasn't on TikTok. He wasn't TikTok famous or anything like that. But what he was, what God the Father sent him to do was not to be happy, but to be holy for us in our place, for our sins. And so if we're looking to, to Jesus to follow him and to be like him, he is the ultimate one that was called into something painful. And what did it do? Well, it, it broke him. It, it pushed him low, but, but in, in him being crushed and pushed low, then the Father then exalts him up high. Don't you see what's happening in the life of Christ and also in the life of Hosea. So, so now, as, as far as Hosea is concerned, obviously, this was a one-time thing. God is not calling us to what he was calling Hosea to, for sure. But listen, some of you in this room are being called to parent children with special needs. 
And so, yes, there is joy in that, but there's also pain, isn't there? Some of you are being called to endure in a difficult marriage. Some of you are being called to remain steadfast, even though your health is failing. Some of you, God is calling to parent a wayward child. Some of you, God is calling you to to love your aging parents who now need your help. These are all painful and difficult callings that God calls us into and places on our lives. And the reason that he's doing that is to transform us into something that we could never be without going through that. And and the whole point, the whole point of it is for you to depend on him and not to look to other gods. Last week in our reading, we read the beginning of Hosea and we discovered these three children. So he calls Hosea to not only marry a prostitute, but to love her. And so it says in Hosea 1, 4 through 5, just go back with me to Hosea 1. Look at verses 4 and 5. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of of Jezreel. So they, they marry and they conceive and their firstborn son is named Jezreel. Why is he called Jezreel? Well, he's called Jezreel because God says, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Well, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, what you've got to do then is go back in the Old Testament and do your Old Testament history, specifically go back and read first and second Kings. What we discover is that the Jezreel is a piece of land where there was a whole lot of bloodshed. Okay, just just listen to this. So so there's this guy, Jehu. Jehu was anointed king of Israel in 2 Kings 9, but he was the problem. There was already a king. And so what Jehu has to has to do is he has to go and, and kill the king. And so he kills the king and he leaves the king's bleeding body on this land known as Jezreel. Then he gave an order for the existing queen mother, that being the evil queen Jezebel. You remember all the terrible stories about her. Well, Jehu orders that she be thrown from the tower and killed. And so again, go back and read it for yourself. I read it this week. It's, it's pretty terrifying stuff. And so Jehu and, and his cohort, they, they throw Jezebel out of the tower. She actually hits the wall and blood spatters everywhere. She hits the ground and then is trampled by horses. And then she's eaten by dogs. Uh, and that's all in Jezreel. I mean, it's, it's pretty bloody, uh, pretty terrifying type of things. Then, if that, that's not enough blood for you, uh, Jehu then killed another descendant of another king. Uh, and then he killed the southern kingdom's king, Ahaz. Uh, and all of that happened in Jezreel. And finally, all 70 sons of Ahab were killed and their heads were piled up at the gate at Jezreel pretty bloody type stuff. So if, if that grosses you out, here's the whole point of what God is saying uh, in verses four and five here. What he's saying is that he's going to destroy the Northern kingdom. That's why it was talking about, he's going to break their bow, the, the bow being their military power. 
So this is, this is a, a pronunciation of judgment on the northern kingdom. He's going to destroy them. The, the, the term Jezreel actually means scattered. So yes, it refers to this bloody piece of ground in 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, but Jezreel means to be scattered. So he's, he's gonna scatter them to the wind, no longer in the promised land. You're, you are kicked out, you're done, I'm, I'm done with you. This is the judgment. Look at Hosea verse six, we'll be introduced to the second child that is born and it's a daughter. Look at it, she conceived again and bore a daughter and the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So Gomer uh, bears this daughter and her name is no mercy, or if you look there in your footnotes, lo ruhama, what God is saying here is gone are the days of mercy and forgiveness. I'm done with you. You've turned your back on me. You've chased after these other gods. Go have them. I'm done with you. And then the third child is born again. Look at uh, Hosea 1, 8 and 9 says this. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. So it's a boy first and then a daughter. And then they, they have a third son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is almost a, a reversal of the covenant. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God says time and time and time again, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the covenant language that he has given to them. And so here, this third child, he tells them to name it this, to almost reverse the covenant that he had made with them for them to be his people and for him to be their God. He, he has changed all of this. He's flipping all of this uh, on, on its head. And so this is what's happening with these three children and, and as their names are given. And so this is what is going on in the text. Now, as we, as we move on into chapter two, what we're going to discover is that Gomer actually adds insult to injury. So... What you see there in the text, when, when Jezreel is born, it says that she bore him, that being Hosea, a son. The other two children, it just says that she had them, this promiscuous woman. And so we're almost left to believe. And if you read the rest of Hosea, it's pretty explicit that these children are not Hosea's. Yet what we discover at the beginning of chapter two is that Hosea is caring for them and she's gone. Hosea is there with Jezreel, which is definitely his, but then he has Lo-Ruhama and Lo-Ami. They're, they're there with him and she's off with another lover. And to make matters worse, she is attributing all of her wealth and all of her needs being met. She is attributing it to her lovers when it's actually Hosea that is providing for her. Look at verse five, four in chapter two, for their mother played the whore. She who conceived then has acted shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. She's a, all this stuff, the wool and the oil and the flax and the wine and all these gifts my lovers are giving to me, but skip down to verse eight. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, who lavished her with silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Can you... Can you get this picture in your mind of the love that Hosea has for Gomer? 
There he is. He, he's walking in the city streets and, and, and maybe somebody comes up to him and says, Hosea, Hosea, have you, have you heard what's going on with Gomer? And he says, no, I haven't, I haven't heard. She, she left me for, for another lover and I'm, I'm taking care of the kids. And then the guy says to him, well, you gotta know this. The, the guy that she's with, he can't provide for her. She doesn't have food to eat. She doesn't have any dresses to wear. She's absolutely destitute and in love. Do you see what Hosea does? He goes and he gets a basket filled with food and wine and clothes and money and he goes I mean just imagine him walking up to the door of his wife's boyfriend's house and knocking on the door and the, the man comes to the door and he says who are you and he says is, is this the house of Gomer the the daughter of Diblame and he says yeah what's it to you and he says this is for her and he gives the man the gift but does the boyfriend then give credit to Hosea, well, of course not. He lies to her and tells her that it's, it's from him. And so then they, they spend a portion of it on worshiping a false god. You have to get this picture in your mind. It's, it's utterly mind-blowing to see the love that Hosea has for her, even though she is unfaithful. And just like the lives of Hosea and Gomer, the nation of Israel was attributing its success and its economic power and its military might to Baal when God was the one that was protecting Israel. And church family, isn't that so true of us? Isn't that exactly the same thing we do? When we find success in business or in our own finances, do we really give credit where credit is due? How often do we bestow true honor and glory on God for the gifts that he has given us, for the things that he has bestowed on his church family? When is the last time that we have fallen on our faces and thanked him for the mercy and for the goodness and for the grace and for all of the stuff that he doesn't have to give us, but he pours out on us anyway? How often do we give credit where credit is due? And so the question then is, how is Hosea going to respond to this? I mean, she's been unfaithful. She's had children out of wedlock. She's left the kids with him. She's moved in with this other lover. She's attributing all of her success and everything that's going on with, attributing it to these other lovers and to these false guys. How is Hosea going to respond to Gomer? The, the bigger question then, because it's a picture of what's happening, how is God then going to respond to Israel? Because it's the picture of Israel has gone after these other gods, just like Gomer has gone after these other lovers. And in the same way, church family, the deeper question then is this, how is God going to respond to us? Because we're wrapped up in this picture too. So how is Hosea going to respond to Gomer because she's left him? She's attributed all of her success to this other guy. How is God going to respond to Israel because Israel has turned its back on, on God who has protected them and provided for them? And the deeper question is this, how is God going to respond to us because we have forsaken him? We have turned our back on him. He has instructed us in the ways that we should go. And we have said, no, 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 my plan is better. God has said, wait. And we've said, no, 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 my timing is better. My idea is better. God, if you just do it my way, Way. Oh, you're not going to do it my way, God? Forget it. I'll go my own way and do my own thing. How is God then going to respond to us? Look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. I can hardly believe what this verse says. If you understand it, it will shock you. If you see how God then responds to us, 
If you see Hosea responding here to Gomer, if you see God responding then to the nation of Israel, if you see God then responding to us in this verse, it will break your heart in the best kind of way. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I can hardly believe that. If you understand the love of God, he is allure. Hosea, his thought process here is not forget her. I'm done with her. He says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to, I'm going to bring her back. God says to his nation that has turned his back on him, that is attributing its economic power and success to all these foreign gods and, and, and has forsaken the way that God has laid it. God says, no, no, I'm going to allure. These are, these are my people. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to lure them back. Look at, look at what it says. It says, I, I, therefore I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. No, no, no. Leave her in the wilderness, right? Like, don't allure her back. Forget her and leave her in the wilderness. But, but it says, I'm going to allure her and bring, bring her in. The, what, what does that mean? He's going to bring her into the wilderness. Well, think about when the nation left Egypt and they enter into what? The, the wilderness and so the wilderness is not as if he's just leave her. That's, he's not leaving her in the wilderness. That's not what he's saying at all. What happened to the nation of Israel when they were in the wilderness? Well, they were protected by God from foreign enemies that tried to come and, and, and attack them. They were provided for by God because there was manna from heaven, water from a rock. He took care of them uh, like every step of the way. They were protected. They were provided for. And there was this promise. The promise was you guys are on the way to the promised land. So they were protected, they're provided for, and there was a promise all in the wilderness. And so what he's saying by alluring her is he, he's saying, I'm gonna allure her into the wilderness to be with me because I'm gonna protect her, I'm gonna provide for her, and I'm gonna give her this promise. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is this is a lover speaking to another lover. This is the embrace and the, the sweet nothings that we say to each other. We whisper into each other's ear. This is, this is a tender love. And this, this love from God is going to an unfaithful nation. This love from Hosea is going to an unfaithful wife. This, this love that's coming from God and being poured out on us is coming to us an unfaithful people. This is why the love of God is so incredibly shocking. It's just to read verse 14. I mean, we should, when we understand the depth of our sin, we see the beauty of God's love. As a matter of fact, if you're taking notes, to diminish the ugliness of sin is to diminish the beauty of God's love. If you downplay sin, oh, it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's, hey, it's your own, it's your own sexual choice. It's what, it's however you decide to live your life. When, when we downplay sin, it actually diminishes the beauty of God and his love. But when we look fully in the face of sin and we see its ugliness and its depravity and its destruction and its corrosiveness, when we understand what sin really is, and then you go, wait, wait, God loves us? God loves me? I can, I can hardly believe this. Verse 15. And there I will give her her vineyards 
and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. So, so, so what, what is the valley of Achor and, and what's the deal with it being a door of hope? Okay, let, let's answer that question. Well, if you're, if you're reading in the ESV, you're going to get that little footnote there, and, and it's going to send you down into the footnotes, and you'll see that uh, th- this, this valley of Achor is a, a valley of trouble. It's a, it's a valley of, of trouble there. You'll, you'll see that. So why is it uh, a valley of trouble? Well, uh, you'll see then there also in the footnotes that will refer you to, to Joshua. We won't turn to Joshua. I'll just tell you what happened. As they enter into the promised land, uh, there, there's this city uh, in the way, that city is Jericho, and so they, they have to attack Jericho, and, and you guys know the story, the walls, you know, blah, 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 you get it. Well, after that defeat, they're told specifically not to take any of the silver, not to take any of the gold, leave all of the spoils of war over there, don't, don't touch it. And so they all do that, except for one guy, Achan, old Achan, he's called mistaken Achan, right? He He's not supposed to do this, but he does it anyway. He goes, he gets the silver and the gold and takes the stuff, and he buries it in the tent. Well, then they go to this other battle, and they lose. And so they're like, what's going on? Why did we lose that battle? Like, well, God tells them there's sin in the camp. Long story short, they end up finding out about old mistaken Achan. And Achan and his family is taken to the valley of Achor, and they're stoned to death. So the Valley of Achor is a symbol or a picture of swift, brutal judgment. So what he just said is that he is going to take the Valley of Achor, a place of swift, brutal judgment, and actually transform it into a door of hope. Well, how in the world is God going to transform what should rightfully come to us, that being swift, brutal judgment how is he going to transform that into a door of hope how is he going to take this place of trouble this place of trouble and make it into a place of hope well i'm glad that you asked church family because in john 12 27 listen to what jesus has to say jesus says now is my soul troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour before this very purpose i have come to this hour or how about john 13 21 after saying these things jesus was what troubled in the valley of trouble in his spirit. Don't you see? Jesus was troubled in our place, transforming this place of swift judgment into a door of hope. And so this morning, if you are feeling hopeless, if you, if you feel like there is no hope in my finances, there's no hope in my marriage, there's no hope in my parenting, God says, I got a door of hope for you. And that, that door of hope is Jesus. And he is asking us to walk through it so much so that Jesus says this in John 14, 27, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not that the world gives, but do I give. Let not your hearts be what? Troubled, neither let them be afraid. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus, Jesus has taken what should have been swift, brutal punishment to us and transformed it into a door of hope? This is our God. Look at verse 16 and 17 in our text. It says this, and in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I've removed the name of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall remember my name no more. What's so interesting about this, do you know 
what the literal translation of Baal is. Master. He, he's saying to them, I, I, I don't want you to call me master. I, I want you to call me husband because I love you. And so for every single person in the room that believes what God desperately wants from you is for you to obey, you got that wrong. He does want you to obey, <laughs> but he wants you to love him because he is your husband and not your master. Now in the loving, you will obey him, right? But they had the, they had the wrong picture. What they were doing is sacrificing to Baal, giving money to Baal, uh, you know, doing all this stuff, praying to Baal to elicit a response, that response being prosperity, fertility, you know, economic, you know, and, and so that was the type of relationship. If you served Baal, he'd give you the stuff. And God says, I, I, don't, I don't want that kind of relationship with you. I'm not looking for you to just sacrifice to me and just give me this stuff so I'll do what you want. No, no, I want to enter into a loving relationship with you because I love you. It's incredible. It's incredible. Look at verse 18. And I will make for them a covenant on that day when the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Hear the voice of Hosea speaking to, to Gomer. I, 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 want, I want you to be safe with me. You, you're not being cared for with these other lovers, and I, I, want, I want you to be safe with me. Hear the voice of the Lord speaking to his nation. He, he's saying, I want you to be safe with me. These, they actually... <laughs> The nation of Israel actually turns to other nations to protect them when they're being attacked instead of turning to God. And God says, those other nations are going to protect you. I want, I want you to be safe with me. And then he makes this promise that he's going to abolish the bow and war from the land. Well, when is that going to happen? I mean, certainly this is Hosea speaking to Gomer. Certainly this is God speaking to the nation of Israel at that time. But this is also, church family, God speaking to us, pointing us to the great cosmic renewal. Did you know there's going to be a great cosmic renewal when all things are made new, when there will be no more pain, there will be no more tears, there will be no more crying, there will be no more war, there will be no more shots fired, no more people killed, the streets will no longer run with blood. What will happen is there'll be beauty and peace and cosmic renewal. This is what this is pointing us to, and he's going to take this unlovely, unfaithful bride, she will be renewed. That's the church. She will be renewed. She will be given clothes of white and brought into this great cosmic renewal where we'll be with him forever, seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what this verse is pointing us to. Look at verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you. He says it again. In righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you a third time to me in faithfulness and you shall know, that's a very important word, and you shall know the Lord. Do, do you see what Hosea is saying to Gomer? I'm trying to show you all three pictures here. Do you see what Hosea is saying to, to Gomer? He's saying, I'm, I'm gonna betroth you. Wait a second, they're already married. Yes, but she has been unfaithful 
And he's saying, I, I want us to get re-engaged. That, that's the language that, that we would use. Meaning this, he's, he's saying to Gomer, it's a clean slate. I betroth you. I, I know that we're already married, but, but it's a clean slate now. I'm going to betroth you. That's exactly what God is, is saying to the nation of Israel. God is saying to the nation of Israel, I betroth you. It's a, it's a redo. Anybody, anybody in here this morning need a redo, right? I need, I need a redo this morning. And so what God is saying here with open arms, I'm, grant, I'm giving you a redo, a clean slate, a new beginning. I betroth you is, is exactly what there's, God is saying to the nation of Israel. And God is saying to us, and look at what verse 20 says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. We, we know what this no means, don't we? Right, as, as Adam knew Eve, right? Th this, is, this is a picture of marital intimacy. He's giving them a total fresh new start with a renewed intimacy. It, I mean, th this type of love is, it's hard to fathom, but, but it's true, it's real, and it's there. And so church family, here it is. Here's, here's the point of the sermon. Usually I give you the, the point of the sermon at the, at the beginning. Now I'm giving it to you at the end. Here's the whole point of the sermon. I want you to see the power of God's love changes our identity and restores us to a right relationship with him. That is the power of God's love. The power, it's so overwhelming. It's so shocking. It's so powerful. What God's love does is it changes our identity and restores us to a right relationship with him. So, so remember Jezreel? Remember Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami back in chapter one that we, that we looked at? Well, in, in the concluding verses here, the power of God's love actually changes their names. It changes their names. It's so incredible. Look at it. And here's what you have to understand. Names in the Bible are not just names. Like we just, you know, we go on, you know, bestbabynames.com and we find whatever. That's not, that's not how it is in the Bible. In the Bible, a name is their identity. And so he, the power of God's love is actually gonna change the names and change the identities of these three children. Look at it. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer with grain and wine and oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. There it is. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. So remember, I told you Jezreel, Jezreel means to be scattered, right? He said, I'm scattering you out of the land. Forget it. Like that's, that's why your name is Jezreel. But here it's reversed. It's, 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 it's renewed, right? His name is Jezreel, but it doesn't mean scattered away. No, no, this is scattering of fertile seed to grow and produce. Do you, do you see that? And in that day, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, so on and so forth. The earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Look at verse 23, and I will sow her for myself, not scattered to the wind. No, no, scattered seed on the ground, which is fruitful and produces wine and grain and oil. He, he's totally renewed and transformed Jezreel from being scattered away into the wind to scattered seed in the soil, which is going to grow and produce. Or, or how about, how about uh, 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 look, and I will have mercy on no mercy. Your, your name is not no mercy anymore. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm not going to give you what you deserve is, is what he's saying. And, and, and then look at this. I will say to not my people, you are my people. He is back to this covenant language of you will be my people and I will 
be your God. This is why Paul says in Romans 9, 22 through 26, look at, this is, this is the apostle Paul repeating here what is said in Hosea. Look at Romans 9, uh, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of the glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand, even us who has called, not from the Jews only, but from Gentiles, all the Gentiles in the room said, amen. We're, we're glad for this type of mercy. As indeed it says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people and her who is not my beloved, I will call her beloved. And in that very place, it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. If you're, if you're in here this morning, I want you to know the power of God's love has transformed you if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have a new name. You're not what they used to call you back in the day. You're not what that person said that you were, that you've been carrying around with you. No, no, God has given you a new name. The power of his love has transformed you into something else. You are now a new creature and a new creation. And that happens through the cross and that happens through the power of God's love. Now, if this is how God responds to our unfaithfulness, how are we then to respond to his love? Well, we respond through repentance on our knees and we respond this way, and let's say this in close, we respond to this type of love, this type of love that has the power to transform. We, we respond to it this way. We respond to him as a loving husband and we worship him as savior and his friend. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for transforming Jezreel and transforming Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami. We thank you for the love that transforms us into becoming and being something that we could never be unless you called us in to do and be in places that are difficult. And so Lord, I lift up those who were hurting this morning Lord, let them know that the power of your love has transformed them. God, take us to a place to where we don't look to you as master, but we respond to you as our husband who loves us. Oh God, make these things true with the people of Gospel Community Church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.